Okay, good morning. Um, my name is Eric Saltzman. I'm a uh, founder and board member of Creative Commons, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Creative Commons and more about some of the issues that uh, we're all been dealing with for the last couple of days. And um, my background, that seems like it's all converging here. I, I'm a cab ride to the airport to get here. I was in a cab with a Haitian driver, and he was telling me about his son and how proud he was that he's an engineer. This guy just arrived here about uh, 15 years ago with his kids, who were then nine. One is an engineer in bioengineering. And he guessed immediately that I was a lawyer. And I sort of said, well, I used to be a lawyer. He said, no, if you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer. And, <laughs> and um, so um, I haven't made films for a long time, but if I've always uh, been a lawyer and can't uh, deny that one, then I also now want to say that I was a filmmaker. And um, uh, possibly uh, couldn't find enough red tape in the legal world, so moved to the world of media. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few days. Um, in uh, the 19, uh, late, in 1980, I made a uh, film about a legal case, and that was a hybrid, in a way, of um, uh, the type of hybrid we may want to talk about some more here, because it started out that the project was funded to make teaching films for law schools, and then uh, I learned to do that, and then ultimately made it this documentary film. Before that, I was an AV operator in junior high school. <laughs> <laughs> I had a pin that said AV operator. I me really remember very well the film strips. I remember one of the movies perfectly well. Somebody's talking about how important this is or how we learn from these types of things. I remember one in driver's ed called Dead Right. Everybody seems to remember that film. And I, um, being an AV operator, I also, I, I did it wrong and I put the 16 millimeter film in and uh, didn't have the tensions right on the Bell and Howell projector, and I snapped the thing, and I had to splice it back together. And using the splicing machine, I cut off a bit of the tip of my finger, and I was afraid to tell the AV guy because I so wanted to keep my AV there. So I went to the nurse, and I told her, and she couldn't tell anybody. Um, so this has been important to me for many years. Um, this film um, was made in um, 1980, and now, as you can see, um, I kept the rights to it. It was shown on ABC. They had the rights to a play or two. And now it's up on a, a thing called Common Content, which somehow uh, vets or, or uh, uh, collects um, open content material. And when, when I say open content, we'll get to some more definition of that. Um, I'm looking for that film. Can you guys play that film for a minute? March 9, 1978, this man, Jack Jones, 51 years old and unemployed, shot and seriously wounded another man in a decaying hotel in downtown Seattle. I shot him because I was scared he was going to kill me. The man Jones shot, Raymond Collins, also known as Big Man, is in critical condition at a local hospital. 
Jones is charged with assault with intent to commit murder. If found guilty, he could be sentenced to... So to put this in perspective, this was the first long-format uh, tape news uh, project that ABC had, and a year, a year later I made something for NET, and you saw how crude these graphics were. We had access to the hard disk in a big room all by itself with some cooling device, and um, we had... Uh, we got 10 minutes to use it that week. Mm -hmm. hard disk. It's probably you know, some tiny fraction of uh, what we all have now on our computers. Um, does anybody need to know about how Creative Commons works? Or put it this way, are, are, are there people here who are not very familiar with how Creative Commons works? Because it's been talked about a lot. There are some, okay. So I'm gonna take the liberty. It's about, this is about a two and a half minute flash video and it explains how Creative Commons works. I'm not going to talk about Creative Commons too long, but I think it's, it's uh, worth understanding. These are Jack and Meg White, also known as the White Stripes. They're a band from Detroit. They make rock and roll without a bass guitarist. This is Steve McDonald of the veteran band Red Cross. Steve thought the White Stripes could use a bass player, so he appointed himself. He took the White Stripes album called White Blood Cells and re-recorded it, laying a bass track down on every song. Then he released the results as MP3s on Red Cross's website. He even made up a new album cover and title, Red Blood Cells. McDonald began putting these copyrighted songs online without permission from the White Stripes or their record label. During the project, he bumped into Jack White, who gave him spoken assent to continue. It can be that easy when you skip the intermediaries. Collaboration across space and time. Creative co-authorship with people you've never met. Standing on the shoulders of your peers. It's what the internet is all about. It can be that easy when you skip the intermediaries. But couldn't it be easier still? Not many of us are liable just to bump into Jack White and get the green light. And he's not going to let just anyone play the bass over his songs in any case. But what about other artists who might want you or me to play along? Shouldn't we be able to, if they don't mind? Enter one of the Internet's most famous citizens. A face familiar the world over, a public identity rivaled only by a handful of corporate giants and global superstars, the Big Copyright C. Everyone knows what Big C stands for. Big C means all rights reserved. Big C means ask permission. Big C protects copyright owners and notifies the rest of us of their ownership. The time was when you had to put Big C on anything you wanted to copyright or else it entered the public domain. The commons of information where nothing is owned and all is permitted. You had to put the world on notice to warn them. That was Big C's job. And it was a useful one. What changed? The law. By the late 1980s, U.S. law had changed so that works become copyrighted automatically the moment they're made. 
the moment you hit save on that research paper, the second it's closed, the instant you lift your pen from that cocktail napkin doodle, your creation is copyrighted, whether Big C makes a cameo or not. So suddenly, there's no quick way of knowing whether something's owned or not. The new rules may be clear about how you get to own a work. You don't have to do anything. But they say nothing at all about how you should go about announcing that you want to allow certain uses of your work. So what? Well, if you're a digital filmmaker whose every frame must be cleared by an army of lawyers before making the cut, or if you're in a band whose label won't let you put a song on a file-sharing network, or if you're a professor trying to put together online course materials, or if you're a DJ chasing down permission to use every snippet of song in your sonic collage, if you're one of these people, then you know, so what? We interrupt this brainstorm to call the lawyers. You drop what you're doing and call all the lawyers. You ask for permission, even to use a work whose author doesn't mind if you use it, because you have no idea what the author's intent is. You ask for permission, even to share some of your rights. Or you venture forward, unsure what your risks and rights are exactly. Or, in a haze of legal doubt, you do nothing. The bottom line, Big C is out of a job. The middlemen are not. Enter Creative Commons. Creative Commons wanted to find an easy way to help people tell the world up front that they want to allow some uses of their work. We called the experts, the U.S. Copyright Office, for advice. Their response? There's no real answer. Get creative. So we got creative. How? Our CC brand marks works that are governed by Creative Commons licenses. A set of standardized copyright licenses available free of charge on our website. We wrote these licenses so that lawyers and courts could read them. Then we translated them into a language you can read. And then we translated them into a language computers can read. Now, CC isn't meant to compete with copyright, but to complement it. It allows you to retain your copyright while granting the world permission to make certain uses of it upon certain conditions. If the big C is like a red light, then CC is a green light. If the big C says, no trespassing, the double C says, please come in. If the big C says, all rights reserved, CC says, some rights reserved. So you can use the powers of the net to find works free to share and build upon and to invite other people to transform or trade yours so that you can get creative, not only with what you make, but how you make it available, so you can collaborate across space and time, so you can be a co-author with someone you've never met, so you can stand on the shoulders of your peers all without asking permission, because permission has already been granted. Creative Commons. Get creative. It's easy when you skip the intermediaries. Okay, so uh, you get the idea. There are various licenses that one can choose from, and the, the stripes are basically, you can choose a non, all licenses now, require attribution to the creator. You can choose a non-commercial license, you can choose a license that allows or doesn't allow derivative works and a few other stripes. Okay, now, as has been clear the last few days, all this is really easy 
if you've created all the work yourself, if you're an individual or you've got a team and everybody agrees that what you're going to do is going to be put under a license of this sort, we like Creative Commons licenses because we know by now that they work, the system works, metadata attaches to them, people can search for them. There are various ways to search for work under Creative Commons, so the system works well. But what people have been mainly talking about the last few days is something, or, or the last day, is something more complicated. And that more complicated thing is, what happens when you want to take material from various sources, some material that may in your organization be legacy material, and um, uh, allow it to be used? So we've been talking about some different organizations. Um, I want to bring this one up. Um, even though we're being hosted by Columbia, here's an attempt or, or an effort that Columbia did some years ago <coughs> called Fathom. And Fathom, here's Fathom's website now. I guess it's still up there and it still has material up there. But when Fathom got started, it was a, meant to be a, a profit center for Columbia University and Columbia's partners. And Columbia looks like put in Columbia shut down in 2003. It's for-profit online learning designed to sell web-based courses and seminars to the public. They even had at Columbia at the time an office that was meant to support professors in building these <coughs> courses and the professors were going to share in the profits. And uh, in 2001, Columbia gave Fathom $14.9 million while the venture earned $7,000 from fees. So uh, we're, we, we are past that model. There are, of course, some private universities engaged in online learning for a fee, but the big public institutions and the small ones are not doing this anymore. Um, MIT, we heard a big discussion about open courseware. MIT is a really um, a early um, example. And MIT goes and makes sure they, they have an operation that clears rights. They, uh, they, get, they only work with professors who want to, then, and then they clear the rights. And um, they use a Creative Commons license, which you can probably see down at the bottom here. Here's the Creative Commons license, some rights reserved. And the, right, and the license that Creative Commons uses um, is- 2.5 to 20 or 2.0. Oh, okay. So, uh, but anyhow, it's, it's one of the licenses. And under the following conditions, you must give attribution, it's non-commercial, and you must share alike. So that, that means you may make derivative works. MIT, this is sort of a little um, inside baseball. MIT, <coughs> oh, okay. Uh-oh. What? Why was he the only one to warn me? Why didn't the rest of you see that? Hmm. Yeah, put my link there. Um, MIT has done something <coughs> that uh, they put under their FAQs, they've got a license that says um, uh, non-commercial share-alike, so derivative works, are permitted, and they have put under their FAQs, nevertheless, that this is meant to be for um, educational use. So I'll, I'm going to show you that in a minute when we get that, that back up. Um, I went and looked at the, while um, 
previous speaker was talking and went and looked at the open courseware um, consortium. And what the open courseware consortium says is that they want people to use licenses. In fact, they require, I guess, people to use licenses that uh, permit derivative works. Um, so MIT does that. The discussion we saw from the people at Columbia yesterday looks like that's a closed toolkit that doesn't allow works outside, right? <laughs> so Columbia's made the choice, at least for now, that what they're doing is presenting you with a toolkit. If I understand it right, you can play whoever you are outside the university within that toolkit. Is that right? You have to log in. You have to log, you have to log in. Yeah. But that toolkit is closed. So what we're now talking about are vi the, the various stripes of uh, openness. Real quick. Yeah. Yeah. We're not forcing people to allow to remix. That is in our agreement that it's that it's required. But there's some who sort of don't have that culture today, and so we're allowing some to come in, depending on the value. It's sort of a little bit of a judgment call. But we're sort of nurturing them with a strong recommendation. Right. Okay. So you're you're aiming to get there and now you're urging people to do it. And most do. Um, Creative Commons is um, about to launch a new um, a new initiative. We have now uh, Creative Commons has a sister or, or uh, a sister or daughter organization called Science Commons, and now we're about to launch with generous help from Hewlett Foundation. Uh, an organization that would be called Learning Commons or CC Learn. And I want to, we spent time writing this, so I want to read it to you so, so you can hear it. Here's what the Learning Commons is going to do. And you'll see that what the Learning Commons is going to do is to, to try to coordinate um, on the technical side, on the legal side, and even on the networking side, um, the world of open educational resources. Learning Commons will focus on removing barriers to sharing and reuse of open educational resources. Some barriers are legal. Some <coughs> open resources are licensed under widely varying terms with conditions that are restrictive, hard to understand, or mutually incompatible with those of other OER sites. There are technical barriers between OER sites designed around individual ease of use without due regard for enabling the finding, combining, and localizing materials from other open sources worldwide. And there are cultural barriers that include the absence of a network orientation toward OER. So one of the things that I've come away with in these uh, day and a half so far is that there is not yet an understanding of how open educational resources will network together. We saw at Yale they're going to be open and allow derivative works. Some others don't. But the way in which these systems will talk to each other, the way one can search across platforms, is not yet um, well worked out. And the uh, Creative Commons hopes to bring its expertise to that area. Um, I think I'm going to stop and maybe get a chance to come back and let Josh Nathan, Josh Nathan talk. Josh is the general counsel of WNET. Hi. Um, I've been with WNET for 10 years. We are a public broadcaster. We operate Channel 13 and Channel 21 here in New York. 
We're the producer or presenter of some of the key PBS uh, programs, including Nature, Great Performances, American Masters, Charlie Rose, uh, The News Hour, the most trusted video content available. And we have a very strong partnership with educators, particularly K through 12. Um, I've been counseling producers and educators on rights. I've produced films myself, and so I understand the whole rights process from the edit room perspective and the headaches of the brainstorms and calling up the lawyers and, 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 and being the lawyer. Um, so I want to give a, a little bit of perspective from the trenches and put it in the context of what's going on in the commercial world, because the whole notion of free rights and fair use and creative commons is a little port in a big storm that's going on, and it's a very important uh, port. Um, I just want to cover a couple of basics. I'm trying to do this quickly so we have a lot of time, first of all, for Eric to uh, talk about the second part of his presentation, which is critical, and for there to be time for discussion. Um, traditionally, the way we negotiate rights is with, uh, we, we, we negotiate them in terms of manner and media, territory and term. And remember that trinity, because it isn't going to be here for much longer. We also negotiate in terms of exclusivity, and exclusivity is critical to any rights package today. But that's also going to change. The bottom line is negotiations for rights are about money, trying to give up as few rights as possible for as much money as you can get, or the other way around, paying as little for as much as you can get. That's always the tension. That's what's going on in most of the world. The market and the prices for these rights are driven on how we monetize viewership of video content. And that happens in two ways. Either a pay-to-view model, like a movie theater or a DVD sale or rental, or free view supported by ads or sponsorship, like television, the web, even public television. And technology is changing viewership radically and quickly, and more so now than ever before. The internet is now a high-end video portal. Computers are now video receivers and playback devices. iPods are offering a whole new format. This change in viewership is changing where we monetize viewership. And I want to put up, well, you've got it, this one slide, which illustrates the tipping point that's going on in our industry. Look at where the ad dollars are spent today compared to viewership. This is a slide that, that shows the, the green lines are the money spent, the red lines uh, represent viewership. And if you look at the top line, you're going to see how out of whack our ad spending is. Print is spending six times its share, or 60% or of its money, uh, sorry, six times its share uh, compared to the viewership of print. So you've got 6% of the population reading and 30% of the money is going into reading, is going into advertising on print material. The internet is, the, uh, is, is half. We're spending half our money advertising on the internet, but double the amount of time. This is all going to rationalize in the next 18 months, and you're going to see that the spends and the viewership are going to be equal uh, through each category of media. And th the reason this is so critical is what's happening in the commercial world is going to change how we think about rights and how we define them. With the internet and TV convergence, uh, linear and on-demand programming are all going to come to your house through one box if they're not already doing that. 
uh, you're one click of a mouse or remote control away from whatever you want, whether it's pay, pay to view it or ad supported free viewing. And with these new models, we're going to have very interesting new deals in terms of how we distribute content for money. There are going to be combinations of pay to view and ad supported. There's going to be, it's, it's all going to be happening on your box seamlessly, but the deals behind the scenes are going to be right now very complicated because we're figuring them out and no one's quite sure how they're going to make money. The record industry has been wrestling with this for five years. Uh, and I see all the Apple computers in the room and that's the guy who's figured out a big piece of it. Um, uh, it's really stunning how many little apples I'm looking at. <laughs> one, one Sony, 25 apples, <laughs> and a Dell. <laughs> um, so remember the trinity, manner and media, territory term, exclusivity, or all in terms of exclusivity. With these new formats, well, w when, we, when we'd add a new technology, the trinity would just add that format to manner and media. For example, DVD came along. And you just had manner media, t TV, internet, now DVD. Uh, the territory and term were just some logical extension of what should a DVD uh, life in the marketplace be. Today, I'm not sure that manner and media matter anymore. TV, DVD, cable, VOD, internet, it's all coming in your house in, in through one screen. So we don't need that definition. The distinctions are, again, differences without a real distinction. Territory. Well, the web doesn't really tolerate borders. And while there are geo filters out there and some companies are using them and some of us are getting asked to use them in our licenses, they're really not practical for popular culture content or broadly distributed content. And I think in the end of the day, they're going to go away. I don't think the marketplace is going to tolerate them. So I think territory is uh, over time going to disappear as a relevant uh, part of the trinity. And term, well, once it's on the internet, there's no pulling it back. So I think term is really uh, going to become irrelevant. And I think we're going to think about uh, defining or describing rights. Instead of using that, that trinity of descriptors, we're going to think of end users. We're going to think of, are they at home? Are they in a classroom? Are they looking at it on their little iPod or wristwatch? Or are they in a theater? And how are they paying for it? Are they paying to view it, or is it ad-supported? So let's look at how this would impact a rights definition for home video. Typically, home video is defined as DVD, sale or rental. Well, now it's going to be home use, and it's going to mean the purchase or rental for viewing at your home. Who cares how it got there? TV is now going to encompass broadcast, cable, satellite, internet. Again, who cares how it got into your home? It's an ad-supported stream of linear programming, and that's going to be the definition. And it's going to be about how do the rights holders get their money? And what about exclusivity? We always describe our trinity in terms of I've got these exclusive rights. I'm not sure that exclusivity is going to be relevant the same way it has been in the past. I'm on the fence about this, but if you look at things like YouTube and MySpace and all the new sites that the public flocks to to look at video, we all want our content there. And the fastest way to get it there is to let the public put it there and post it, just like the fastest way in the educational market for people to use and exploit video is to let the educators, teachers, and the students just start using it. That's how it's going to get there. That's the quickest way. We're not even going to know as a producer or distributor which the best site is. The hottest site just you know, is suddenly there today, gone tomorrow. It all moves someplace else, 
and I want my content there, but I want to make money on my content. And that's what we're wrestling with. How am I going to make money if my content's posted all over the place? There's always going to be a place for exclusivity. If you look at feature films, there's always going to be this windowing where certain content is going to be, uh, there, there'll be a, a premium in the marketplace. Uh, but again, I think the, the, the notion that non-exclusive was sort of an odd term of art before uh, and something that lawyers and business affairs folks were uncomfortable with, I, I don't <coughs> think that's going to happen anymore. Um, so I think it's in play. What does this all mean for best practices? I think it's a little early to start saying we know what the best practices are going to be. But I think the, the, the bottom line is we need to tag and track our content so that we can collect money. And that ties right into what's going on in the education market today. We're looking at our archives and we're looking at how we can use video clips in, in, in the classroom and how people can swap these things and expand on them. And what we need to have is a way to you, you, you've got to have an archive, you've got to manage your archive, and you've got to deal with the insane cost of building and managing that archive. And that's the big challenge for public television and the big challenge for educational institutions. The, the, the commercial entities haven't figured out how to do it either. There's no perfect system. There's, I think, five hot software products out there now. None of them are, are terrific. They all have pros and cons. They're very expensive. Um, so I think we need to think about how we're going to manage our archive. And I think that's a place where public broadcasting and the education market can, can really collaborate. Uh, we're, we're working right now with NYU, WGBH, PBS, and the Library of Congress on uh, the American Archive, which I think you guys heard about yesterday. Uh, that's a great example of collaboration. The other thing we need is we need some changes in the law, and I think we can collaborate on that as well. If you look at what the copyright law does for educators and public broadcasters, it gives us free music for public broadcasting. Well, broadcasting is going to go with the Trinity. It's not, it doesn't matter how it gets in your home anymore, yet it's only free if it's broadcast. So we're going to have to rethink what public broadcasting means in the Copyright Act. Uh, it also gives schools, and I love this one, seven days to record what I broadcast on public television and then replay it in the classroom, as if you're going to be doing in your <coughs> curriculum what I've done on American Masters Wednesday night. Thursday morning, a teacher's going to be in there talking about Ella Fitzgerald because, well, let's put, you know, the, the U.S. Revolution on hold and let's talk about Ella Fitzgerald. It doesn't work. It never worked. And we need to change that. Classroom use of public television media has, has and that's, that's such a simple fix. I think we could lobby together to make that happen. Uh, there are some other things we should be thinking about in terms of uh, changing the Copyright Act to support the things that Eric's group is doing <coughs> and, and the other things that universities and public broadcasters are doing. And I think that the, the critical thing, um, I'm just looking at some of the other comments I had. I wanted to, I really want time for us to talk about these things. Um, I think the critical thing as we look at all this is to remember that the big mover in the market is always going to be money. And whatever we do is going to have to look at what are the commercial models and how can we take advantage of those models and how can we find a place among those models where no one feels like we're ripping them off but in, instead bringing our social value uh, into the education market, into public broadcasting, out to the public. And with that, let me let Erica okay. Thank you. keep going. So I want to make two, uh, I'd like to make two uh, quick points and then um, talk about an example from the real world from um, actually from WGBH, a 
problem that they invited Creative Commons to think about, but it's a problem that you all may face. Um, first, can you go to, they took the controls away from me now, I have to ask. Can you go to the first uh, bio dev slide, or bio dev page? So this guy on the, on the left here, Christian Sarday, is a friend of mine. He's a terrific uh, um, uh, scientist. He works in the south of France, dives to get his specimens. His specialty is the moment of fertilization. And he's, he's uh, developed miraculous um, uh, photo and video microscopy tools and has made a number of movies. Can you go to the next slide? And this is under the um, category, be careful what you wish for. Uh, no, the one, yeah, that one. Let's just watch it for a second, it's so beautiful. This is a sea urchin egg, a fertilized egg. So this is, be careful what you wish for. Christian put this up. Um, he didn't exactly figure out the license terms, but he wanted everybody to use it. Would you like to know when in creation this happened? It happened on the second day. Because, well I know that because a creationist group in Missouri now sells this as part of their package and <laughs> use this as, as the example. <clears throat> so we know. <clears throat> um, So licensing, license terms are important. The two things that Creative Commons is most focusing now in this realm are compatibility and interoperability. And by those terms, I mean that licenses, um, permissions can interoperate, that w one can, uh, the, whatever system, whatever network system we end up with, that one can recognize the other. Because if we have uh, work in separate silos, and one has to go from one silo to the other, and one can't see what permissions one can have from one to the next, what work is available from one to the next. That's not a future that Creative Commons um, prefers. So we're working hard to figure out that one. And the compatibility is that the licenses simply work together, that work from one can be used in the other, that the machines looking at the metadata on those licenses can talk and understand if you want to cut and paste. You may use this from this one, you may not use this from this one, but you can use another piece from this one, basically. Those are the things that we are primarily focused on, or on, at least on the technical and licensing side. So, um, uh, I'd like to use some time now to talk about a, a particular problem that WGBH faced because it seems so illustrative and interesting. Um, so Sue Kantrowitz is here. She's the uh, vice president and uh, a general counsel, associate general counsel of GBH, general counsel uh, of GBH. Um, she came to Creative Commons to talk about an issue they were working through. So do you want to join us up here? Have a microphone? <laughs> okay. Why don't we take that seat so we're together? Okay. This is not fair in my notes. We have an yeah, educational. Now I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing you know that. 
we have an educational project that Karen Cariani is one of the uh, directors of called Teacher's Domain, which Margaret briefly talked about yesterday. And what Teacher's Domain, it's an online education resource, K through 12. And it started um, actually in the Media Library and Archives about 12 or 15 years ago when we realized that we have a lot of video content that could be used for educational purposes. So we created this site which uses our video resources. And it's largely been science because our archive for science is so large because of the NOVA collection that we have. And as we've added to it, uh, we, we have the, last, the last grant we had was from the Hewlett Foundation. And the Hewlett Foundation, of course, required that all the assets in that, in that next chapter be available as open resources, open content. So what we did, it was pretty challenging, and, and I have to thank Hewlett for pushing the envelope with us, but it was incredibly difficult. Because what we did we, was we took 15 or 20 assets. So how many, how many were there from the? 900. Well, there were 900, but there are new ones. How many new ones? We had 20 new assets, which we um, put into this latest unit. And then we had 900 assets that we were looking at, which meant that we were going back and looking at all the previous content that we had included in Teacher's Domain to see if we could make it available as open content. Now, you have to understand, we are professional documentary filmmakers. We are signatory to a number of collective bargaining agreements with writers, actors, musicians. So we have a SAG agreement and AFTRA agreement. We have a director's, we, we don't have Directors Guild, uh, but we have writers and um, AFM for musicians. We have directors. And they have directors go. And then on top of that, if you've ever seen NOVA, you know that there's a lot of material that we didn't shoot. So there's a lot of third-party material from stock footage houses and archival stills houses, literally from around the world. And they're all subject to different terms and conditions. So we had to sit down and think, how are we going to get these talent agreements, which as Josh talked about, the trilogy, the union agreements still, still uh, look at territorial restrictions, they still look at media. So you have this kind of a la carte menu when you look at rights, and, and the union agreements haven't kind of acknowledged convergence yet. So you have all of this legacy content which has enormous encumbrances. So you have archives you're clearing, you have music you're clearing, and everyone knows anecdotally how difficult it is to clear music. So you have all of these issues, and what happened for us in this last grant that we had, we, we had to take those 900 resources and figure how to make them open. And we weren't successful in doing that because we couldn't change the world, we couldn't change copyright law, we couldn't change the way archives do business, and we certainly could not change the way our union agreements operate at this point in time, although our plans are to continue to work on all these fronts. So we had to come up with a number of levels, ranging from rights we already had for streaming only, working through three other levels. Ultimately, the last level was a fully downloadable open resource which could be mixed and mashed. So we had at one end of the spectrum something which was fully open. At the other end of the spectrum, we had something which could only be streamed. And in the middle, we had something where you could take that two-minute clip, say it's a two-minute clip of cells dividing from ANOVA. You could take that two-minute clip, but if that had other resources, that two-minute clip could be used in another derivative work, but only as a two-minute piece. You couldn't mix and mash within that two-minute piece whereas the last level you could mix and match, match within that two-minute piece. So we had these different levels for these 900 resources. So the challenge that we had was we approached Creative Commons and, and Eric 
to say, is it possible to develop a CC education license? And because a lot of our clearance is for educational purposes, but once you, once you, and, and we have the right to create derivative works only at that last level, all requirements are that they be non-commercial, and of course we would require that anyone give attribution if they're using that content. But how do you guarantee your licensors or the talent that you have that you are in fact um, using those rights for educational purposes? Because as we know, once something is downloaded to a 15-year-old kid's computer, it's out there in the ether, it's out there in the world. So we approached Creative Commons about doing an education license so that we could get further assurance and then we could then pass on the assurances to our licensors or unions or whoever we were dealing with that we were in fact limiting the, what could be done and, and tag this material as education content. And unfortunately the, the CC board rejected that proposition for the reasons that Eric cited. They, they're concerned about the proliferation of licenses and they, they want to ensure the opera, operability of licenses. That's why we had to stick with the four different levels that we have, because we felt that only in the level, the last uh, level where it's fully mixable, you can create derivative works, that, that was the, those were the clearances that we got, which did not have to be limited to education. And then, and I really think in a lot of ways it's a loss for us because it, it creates a huge risk for us to say, okay, we're going to move everything to open content when in fact we don't have those rights from our third party rights holders. So we're, gonna, we're still at it. We're still looking to see how we now queue up you know, upcoming labor negotiations. This has resulted in some real serious thinking about how to ch you know, possibly uh, approach Congress and change the copyright law and how to deal with um, uh, stock footage and stills licensors. So it's queued us up for some work that we will now spend a lot of time doing over this upcoming year in this arena. But at this point in time, it's still incredibly complicated. So that's kind of the scenario that we had. Do you want to add anything to that? I, oh, go ahead. Well, we actually are starting, we're already started. We've met with APPS, which is the lobbying organization for public broadcasting, and we're, they're already starting having, to have informal discussions on the Hill. And with the, since the American Archive was announced at um, Capitol Hill Day, that also prompted discussions among certain legislators. We're excited about the prospects of proposing something during this 110th Congress, because we think that we're going to have support. On the other hand, part of proposing legislation is having some solutions to propose. And at this point in time, we are way too early in our assessment because what we're looking to see is, how are we really gonna do this? How are we gonna create this new paradigm? Do we build on the exemptions and compulsory licenses that we already have? Do we create something new? Is there a new licensing schematic for music that we have to create? I mean, there's an enormous amount of work. So while people think, yes, let's propose legislation, the reality is, what are we gonna propose? And that's something we really have to think long and hard about. And obviously, we're going to get a lot of, we would expect to get a lot of pushback from like the RIA and the MPAA who are looking to monetize. And, and, you know. and so while I'd like to say sooner rather than later, because I think it's in our interest within this 110th Congress to try to do that, I think the practical reality is, is we need some time to study this and to come up with something new. I, I, I agree with that. I think that 
it's premature to, to, to bring this to Congress for one, because we don't have solutions, and two, I don't think the folks who are going to give us pushback, the commercial side of this, are going to be willing to compromise. They haven't figured out what their business model is, and until they figure it out, they're not going to understand whether what we're proposing is good for them, bad for them, or, or sort of irrelevant. And we really want it to be in the irrelevant or good for them uh, category, and, and we can't even tell them that. So I think that the, the whole notion of, of changing the copyright law is important to start focusing on it now, but I wouldn't bank on that changing how we do business uh, in the short term. The other thing to th um, just to be mindful of, it recently some of you may have seen that um, the, the, the Copyright Board came up with very high rates for webcasting radio. Radio on the web, you saw that? Um, and if those rates stay in place, a number of online radio services will go out, literally go out of business. And so what they're now doing is to figuring out kind of next steps in that arena and uh, they're continuing negotiating, and th they're also thinking about going to um, the Court of Appeals. So I think you can see, even with that, that to the extent that the Copyright Rate Board has, m has imposed rates, they're very high for the economy that most of these stations are in. And what we need to do is to figure out, when you're in a nonprofit public media economy, what is the right rate structure? where the rights holders are being compensated fairly for the economy that you're in. And that's one of the things we have to figure out. I'd like to add one other, one other uh, possibility. When, when we're talking about who gets compensated and how, it might be that among uh, educational producers, one way you can compensate the, um, the copyright proprietors of work you want to use, those who are not within your control, um, might be that when you spend time editing producing, um, it just occurs to me you might have something of value to offer back to the owner of the pieces that you're um, putting into your uh, work. You might be able to offer them uses of the work that are outside uh, the educational arena that may be value to them, that are valuable to them, that wouldn't involve an exchange of money. And that, that's a discussion that I think is worth having and worth, be worth beginning to think about. So when Yale takes some um, uh, proprietary uh, photograph ask for, asks for use of it, they might be able to offer something back after they've worked with it to the owner. issues that I think we need to confront that are kind of off, they're, they're, they're perception issues as much as operational. And, and one of them is that um, this could be a world-changing thing in the way that Google announcing that they were going to digitize research libraries was. When they made that announcement, they had very little idea about how they were going to do it. They made it as a preemptive
catch up. In another way, YouTube sort of did this and then, you know, they changed the world uh, without knowing that they were going to. Um, so there's that. This could be a world-changing mission that would raise expectations and get the public and scholarly community and millions <coughs> of teachers behind this. So there's the thought about how do you spin that? And incrementalism doesn't cut it in that sense, even though it may be necessary. So there's that one thing. And then the other, and, and who makes it? It's got to be people who are very, very, very major people. And then the other issue, and this is not kind of a polite thing to say, but the big changes don't get made without disobedience. You know, um, Google didn't ask anybody if they could call the web. Don't forget well, Napster. Napster, yeah, yeah, great point. Um, well, I don't know that that went so well. You're talking about newly shot material? Yeah, the material that's Well, newly produced material, I mean, it depends, and that, I don't mean for that to be a typical lawyer's answer, but newly shot material can have no encumbrances depending on what, you, what purpose it is. To the extent we're making newly shot material for a NOVA documentary, um, you still have your union issues that you have to deal with, but at least you don't have the encumbrance of a third-party archival owner in that situation. Are even you trying to make it a priority and have that nobody tell the staff about this Yeah, I mean I think all of us are looking at that and clearly to the extent that you are um, you especially since music is so difficult, if you use say needle drop music, you know, cleared record library music. But if you're doing the history of rock and roll, you can't use needle drop music, right? And so the question is how do you produce those kinds of documentaries in a smart way? which still tell the story that you need to tell. I mean, one of the things we have to be really concerned about is compromising our editorial needs for this wider distribution. And I think that's a hard balance. Because if you're telling a story that's an especially if you're telling an American experience story, or Peter, uh, Peter and I have talked about telling a, the story about Korea, say. Well, if, you, if, you, if you're telling the story of Korea and you want it, or any, any war, right? And Ken Burns has a, a new multi-part series about the war, World War II, coming out this fall, which will be the corner piece of our fall season. You can't tell that story because you didn't shoot it, okay? You can't tell that story in a totally open way because you didn't shoot it. 
So what you're, what you're reliant on is all the archives all over the world who have that content. If you rely only on material that you have the right to, you end up possibly telling a very different story. So I think we do our best. I think we're very mindful of these issues. But I think that's a reality. When you're making documentary programs, you just can't make them with material that, you, that is free and clear for all these rights. You do your best. The answer also has to be that you're willing to pay for some of these things. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. the opportunity going forward, see, I, I think there's an opportunity for public television and universities and, and schools uh, to coordinate and say, this is what we need when we build content going forward. And I think that's where the collaboration is. How are we going to start building content? What is it that we're making that you can use right now? We have a phenomenal education department, and they take stuff that we make. And the model used to be they'd repurpose pieces of what we made. And in the last couple of years, uh, certainly at, at uh, WNET, they've started getting into the production plan and saying, well, if you're going to make this, it's got to have this and this. And this is what's going to be useful in the classroom. And this is what I need. And that's changed how we think about rights. And that's changed how we negotiate with co-producers. And remember, you don't need the whole 90-minute film to be open content. You can start to identify in advance what parts of it you're going to want to give to educators and say, here, do whatever you want with this. We can build our products that way. And uh, I, I think that's that's where the real opportunity for collaboration is. Yeah, and I think as we, as someone said yesterday, maybe it was Margaret, that it's segments that the educators really want. And that's one of the nice things about Teacher's Domain and some of the other great educational products that come out of NET and public broadcasting, that they're contextualized and they're segmented. So that's, it, that's for easy use in the classroom. So Josh is right, we don't need the whole thing. Absolutely. And we are talking to the BBC. You're absolutely right. And actually, not just the BBC, but there's been some interesting work also done in Canada. So I think part of the next year that we'll be spending doing this work is to evaluate how other countries are dealing with some of these issues. But the, big, the big difference there is they have, uh, they're way ahead of us in their archive uh, and in its organization. And that's, that's the that's the starting point, and we're going to learn a lot from trying to put these archives together in terms of getting old material out there, but also how we produce and track and manage our rights going forward. Uh, and that's, to me, the real value in the archive is, is it's going to set up a framework for how, we, for how we distribute in the future. I'd like to make just one more point about uh, the GBH issue. Um, when the problem that Sue brought to Creative Commons was, can we use Creative Commons licenses and help her with her legacy material, the material that had restrictions on it, material that they didn't just originate, and put it under Creative Commons license. And so there was a balancing we looked at. And this is one, I'm raising it because it's one that many of us will face. Um, what th they thought that a good solution for them was an EDU-only license, a license that said non-commercial, yes, uh, but all, uh, and you may make derivative works, but also educational use only. And the, the, the way we framed it for ourselves in discussing it at Creative Commons was, well, what if we could get out on, uh, for open educational resources, much more material and much 
better material and material that people would be able to work with because after all students and teachers are people who really do rework this material be much more synergy, much more material created, and much more benefit out of it. And on the other side, we looked at creating not just proliferation of licenses, more licenses, but confusion, that they wouldn't interoperate. And we decided for the moment that that was not the right way for Creative Commons to go. But I think all of you who are creating comment, and this is about, uh, content, and this is about uh, video production, when you're bringing in material and deciding how to use it, you'll face that same issue that we did and you'll make your own decisions about it. Well, the challenge there too is who's a teacher and who's an edu and who's a student? Everybody is now. And that's one of the that's one of the challenges for public <laughs> television is we view education as a life learning, a lifelong experience uh, and and that's our that's our contribution is to the outside of school education. So I think, you know, it's it's like who's a journalist now? Everybody's a journalist with the web. Well, it's also everyone's in school too. So th these are these definitions are very tricky, and that's why the, the notion of best practices here and today in 2007 is a little premature.